You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, SpaceX targets, well, $175 billion valuation or more as the most valuable U.S. startup discusses a tender offer of its insider's shares. We'll bring you the details. And AMD takes on chip rival NVIDIA as the company introduces its long-awaited line of AI accelerators. We'll discuss and I'll bring you my conversation with AMD CEO Lisa Su. Plus, after 24 hours straight of talks on AI rules, the EU negotiators remain divided on a plan to adopt the most comprehensive regulation for the technology in the Western world. We'll bring you the latest on the situation out of Brussels. But first, let's get you up to speed with the situation on these markets because AI exuberance is back. We'll dig into the Wise, why Alphabet's rising on the back of the Gemini launch, why AMD, of course, is rising on the back of its AI day. And we see the Nasdaq up one and a quarter of a percent, even though we see bonds actually sell off and yields pushing up just about two basis points. Have we baked in too much of a dovishness around the world when it comes to central banks? The BOJ perhaps realigning our viewpoints on that. And indeed, that's why we're seeing the dollar falling versus the Japanese yen as maybe the BOJ isn't going to be as dovish as had been anticipated. Moving on, look what's happening in the world of the US dollar versus some other key key currencies or assets. I'm looking at what's happening in the world of crypto. And while Bitcoin overall, we have seen it managing to re above that 42,000 now, 43,648 versus a US dollar, went down by some four tenths of percent. No big shakes in the world of crypto, even though, of course, we're still reeling from the Jamie Dimon comments of yesterday, Ed, where he said if he had the control, he'd shut it down. But you've got some big thoughts on some privately held companies. Yeah, we don't often start with a private market piece of news, but this is a big piece of news. SpaceX doing another tender offer, according to our sources. I reported this last night with Gillian Tan and Katie Ruth. Based on the volume of shares that are currently on the table, and these are employee shares that are being sold to outside investors, it's not SpaceX raising money or issuing new equity. The valuation jumps from $150 billion to $175 billion. The trajectory of this company is astonishing. I think we have a chart that basically shows how 
incrementally but rapid the valuation has jumped from 2020 to current, right? We report on this so frequently. Um, a big rationale, of course, behind a tender offer is to give long-serving or suffering staff a chance to make <laughs> some money for their work. I want to get some more of the details bringing in Bloomberg's Katie Ruth. Katie, you and I have been reporting on so many of these rounds, both primary and secondary, secondary in this case for a while. What are the numbers behind this latest tender? Yeah, so we're hearing they expect to price this tender at $95 a share, which would value the company at approximately $175 billion, making it the largest private company in the U.S. Uh, this is up from $150 billion earlier this year that we reported. And at the very beginning of the year, it was $137 billion. So it is defying the odds, defying the market at a time when so many companies are trouble, having trouble maintaining their unicorn status. Uh, this is a centicorn that keeps growing. It is. Well said. And when you put it vis-a-vis the rest of the public markets, well, it's on the same sort of market capitalization as a Nike, for example, bigger than Boeing. I'm, I'm interested as to ultimately what investors want in on when it comes to SpaceX. Is it just its domination within the space and the field? Is it also still wanting a little bit of, well, Elon Musk as a founder, even though he, of course, has sparked concerns with other publicly traded companies of his because of his use of X, for example? Sure, he's absolutely controversial, but my understanding is that investors are excited about Starlink. That is the internet, high-speed internet that can be available in normally hard-to-reach places. There are investors that have spoken to me about with such enthusiasm for Starlink that they're dreaming that someday it will be a trillion-dollar company. Of course, time will see, you know, if it really becomes that. But that is what such a, much of the hype is around SpaceX. We've also reported that the company eventually plans to spin off Starlink and do a separate IPO with Starlink. And so investors are trying to get in on that. We keep our eyes on all of these private market valuations. Katie, alongside, of course, Gillian and Ed, it was brilliant scoop that came out yesterday. And I know we'll still have all eyes on ultimately the business model of SpaceX and indeed a conversation on space more broadly because there's been some great reporting coming time and time again from Lauren Grush at Bloomberg with really the focus being on how SpaceX could just eat everyone's lunch when it comes to the ability on an economic basis to get satellites and other options into low orbit Earth. How are we seeing them just make strides at the moment, Lauren? Well, I think the open question is what's going to happen when their really ambitious, colossal Starship rocket comes online because it can carry more capacity to space than pretty much anyone has the capability to do right now. And if you're looking at the current launch market, you know, it's a it's a capacity constrained market. Really, the only option for satellite operators is SpaceX's other workhorse rocket, the Falcon 9 rocket. And just because other rockets have come offline in recent years and others that are trying to be developed right now have suffered from delays. So there really is only one option for satellite operators. And so to compete with the Falcon 9, other companies have pivoted trying to build larger rockets. Um, but it's just an open question of what's going to happen when Starship starts flying, because it has a lot of promise, a very low price tag and very high flight rate. So it remains to be seen how that's going to impact everyone. 
Uh, I love your writing. I, you know I love your writing, but the way that you talk about Starship, the next generation launch, Starship's audacious size and scale. It, it's not just audacious because it's like bigger than anything that's gone before. The technology is also kind of at the cutting edge. Uh, just explain what you outline in today's beautifully written piece. Right, so there are a few things that make Starship kind of this game changer. It's supposed to be fuel, fully reusable. You know, the Falcon 9 is reusable, but only partially reusable. But with Starship, they really want to bring back every single piece of that rocket. And then also there's promise of launching it, you know, multiple times a day because it's refuse, reusable. And so that would, you know, Elon has kind of come up with a price tag of roughly $10 million per flight. Obviously, there's a lot of skepticism of whether that, that can actually be achieved. And in order to achieve achieve it, you really have to get those ambitious flight rates that they're talking about. So there's a lot of promise, a lot that's being advertised, but if they can bring down the costs like they are promising, then that could be a game changer for satellite operators who maybe just want to get their satellite to space. And so they'll pack it in with maybe hundreds of other satellites on a Starship launch and you know have maybe space tugs take them where they need to go in orbit. What's next? You know, you and I got really excited about Starship attempt number two came and went to SpaceX's mind, massive success. So what happens next? Well, we, they actually need to reach orbital speed. So while uh, they did make a, quite a bit of progress on their second flight, you know, they were able to show stage separation. They were able to have all of their engines on Starship operate as, as they were supposed to. That didn't happen on the first flight. They really do need to get Starship to those near orbital speeds to prove that it can actually reach orbit. And then there's other, you know, there's a very long laundry list of items that they need to achieve to make it the deep space vehicle that, uh, that they want it to be. For instance, they'll have to show that they can fuel up Starship in orbit so that it can reach deep space destinations like the moon. But once they reach those orbital speeds, you know, then they could potentially start launching satellites, uh, you know, Starlink satellites and customer satellites like they've promised. There's still quite of other things to do to make it fully reusable, right? They're going to have to show that they can land it back on Earth in one piece and then fuel it up and, and fly again. But just getting to orbit will be a bit of a game changer for Starship and it'll see how it impacts the industry. Bloomberg's Lauren Grush. It's just been great to have a dedicated Space Beat reporter, Caro, because it's such a massive industry yeah. now, and but only a small part of Elon Musk, Inc., which is why I think we better talk about Grok. You've seen the news that if you are an X, the company or platform formerly known as Twitter, premium subscriber, you now should have access to Grok. I've been trying through the app and, like, deleting, reinstalling. I don't have it yet, but... This is the awaited chatbot. It is, and of course we know that it's meant to be rebellious, humorous, of course, and, and he's been beefing up a team of well-known prestigious scientists and academics to be able to be building this basically take-on of OpenAI, which he himself co-founded. It's notable that, of course, it comes on the same week that the SEC filing showed that maybe XAI is going to be raising money. Elon himself said, look, we're not doing it in the here and now, but we do yes. know that ultimately they want about a billion dollars because this stuff is expensive if you want to be able to have... Yeah, but one billion edge. doesn't even seem like that much money. No compared to what everyone else has raised. I don't get it. Well, it's going to be, what, 25% of Ultimate XAI is going to be held by outside investors. So does that mean that the rest of the money is going to be coming from immediate revenue generation? Is it more that Elon Musk himself is going to be financing it and its growth going forward? I mean, initially, OpenAI, of course, was the non-profit version, and then he left it, and he's criticized since OpenAI has become a profit-focused business. But he himself, I'm assuming, 
is going to be focusing on a profitable XAI and driving subscriptions as X even. I wonder if that's really going to be the key aim here. Yeah, what I'm hearing is there's like a big push to hire talent and talent's expensive and computer's yeah. expensive, so they need some money. Meanwhile, look, as we talk about Elon Inc., we've got to stick with more of Elon Musk and, and turning to actually a bit of a more sensitive issue right now, Ed, because, of course, he's the Tesla CEO, he's the owner of X, and he's actually escalating his public criticism of one Bob Iger, saying that the Disney CEO, quote, should be fired immediately, saying that on the platform X. Musk also referenced a New Mexico lawsuit alleging content from Facebook and Instagram, parent company Meta, enabled check child sexual abuse and trafficking and asked why there was no advertiser boycott on that set of apps. The comments come after Disney, along with other companies, of course, Paul spending on X after Musk endorsed anti-Semitic remarks on the site. From New York, from San Francisco, this is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts AMD is throwing its hat in the ring and going after the AI market with new accelerator chips that says it will be able to run AI software faster than rival products, including NVIDIA's. I sat down with AMD CEO Lisa Su at the launch event yesterday. Have a listen. If you look at training performance, um, we're very, very competitive. Let's call it, you know, it's, it's a toss-up. When you look at inference performance, uh, we're 1.4 to 1.6 times better. 
And you know, what that means is you know, if you're running these models, you can actually run more models or you can run larger models um, you know, with uh, MI300. And, and right now, you know, the key to AI is GPU compute. I mean, that is absolutely what everybody says. And, and so we're here to provide lots of GPU compute. You've had the confidence to dramatically alter your, your forecast for this market for AI accelerators. You're saying a total addressable market of 400 billion US dollars in 2027. In August, just in August, you said it was 150 billion. What has changed? Yeah, and you know, uh, really the way we look at these things is we usually look at these things on an annual basis. And so, you know, when we were, you know, doing our plan for 2023 and beyond last year, uh, we thought that, um, you know, this year there would be about a $30 billion market and it would grow, you know, 50% um, compound annual growth rate. So be about 150 billion in 2027, uh, which frankly was very, very large. Um, but what's changed is we, we can all see what's changed, right? People need more compute. They're installing more. Um, you know, the, the, the numbers for this year are probably closer to 45 billion. And when we talk to customers, when I spend time with our partners and um, you know, what they tell us is uh, the technology requires more compute. And so we now believe the total market for this, um, it's upwards of 400 billion in 2027. It's huge. Uh, there's no one size fits all. There are gonna be multiple solutions. Um, there are lots of good solutions um, out there today, but uh, we, we believe the AMD capability is uh, you know, very significant. And, and so we're excited about it. It was interesting to see on stage how MI300X manifests itself in the real world, but you'd already guided us that it will likely be the, the quickest AMD product to $1 billion. There were sections of the market in the street that said your forecast of $2 billion of sales for MI300X in 24 was conservative. If you're saying that the total addressable market by 2027 is now $400 billion, then is that $2 billion forecast for next year specifically for MI300X conservative, as the market <laughs> thinks it is? Well, I think you have to take a step back and just look at how this technology is evolving. So, uh, you know, we did update in our last, um, you know, conference call to an expectation of about $2 billion in 2024 uh, for our data center GPUs. Um, it's a very early estimate. Um, I would say, you know, we have clear line of sight to that. Uh, but, you know, what people ask me is, you know, like, there's much more customer demand, Definitely. And there's also um, you know, significantly more supply because we've had to prepare the supply chain so that we're ready to ramp. So we'll update as we go along. You know, we, we are um, you know, definitely on this path to ramp um, MI300 uh, the fastest as anything's ever ramped at, at AMD. And you know, I view this as a multi-year opportunity for us. Some breaking news and headlines crossing the Bloomberg terminal. Tesla has had a reshuffle on its dojo project. The former dojo chief, Ganesh Venkataramanan, has left the company. Sources have told me and Bloomberg's Mark Gurman that he left Tesla last month and has been replaced by Peter Bannon, a former Apple executive. He's been at Tesla for around seven years and now takes over leadership of the dojo project. Uh, Venkataramanan's interesting. He set up the AI hardware and silicon group at Tesla more than seven years ago. He is the, the person behind the Dojo supercomputer, but also the D1 chip, the proprietary silicon that is powering the training of video-based data for autonomous driving software at mm. Tesla. An important change there at that company, Karen. 
important because it's about AI, supercomputer, future. The reason many believe that Tesla's market capitalization is indeed where it should be because of its focus on AI. And let's get back to the AI conversation for a moment because we just were listening to your great interview with Lisa Sue of AMD. And we want to get onto that a little bit more with Mandeep Singh from Bloomberg Intelligence on your read of ultimately the competitive space here and an enormous market opportunity. 400 billion, we're just hearing from Lisa Sue, and how are they going to get enough of that market share? Yeah, and I think one of the key distinctions that Lisa Sue highlighted was their focus on inferencing as opposed to training. So we know right now all the GPU capacity was being used for training these large language models. The fact that she's betting that inferencing will really pick up from this point on is a sign that you're probably going to see more co-pilots, more chatbots being deployed. We haven't seen that yet. I mean, look at the monthly active users for you know, uh, GitHub Copilot or uh, the Bard chatbot and all these things. So really, it's a big bet on inferencing taking off. But right now, the market is concentrated on training, and that's where NVIDIA still has the upper hand. And look, the exuberance is there of these things being deployed in enterprise. We just look at Gemini and the impact that's having on Alphabet's share price today. Unfortunately, all this breaking news, we can't dig into that a bit more with you. But Mandeep Singh, always on the money when it comes to analysis from Bloomberg Intelligence. Okay, time for Talking Tech. And first up, Montenegro plans to extradite disgraced crypto tycoon Do Kwon to the U.S. to face criminal charges. That according to a Wall Street Journal report citing sources. The Terraformer Labs co-founder has been jailed in the Balkan country since March and has been denied committing fraud and has denied committing fraud following the crash of that stablecoin, TerraUSD. And Apple's senior executive overseeing touchscreen technology, health sensors, and the company's Face ID interface is leaving the company, according to Bloomberg sources. And finally, November was another banner month for online marketplace Timu following this year's Black Friday sales. Sales on the Chinese platform jumped 29% from a month ago to a new record, almost triple Shane's observed sales in the country. That all, according to Bloomberg data. Caroline. We've got to stick on the resilience of the consumer right now, particularly when it comes not just retail and fashion, but makeup as well. And Glossier CEO, Carl Leahy, is with us. I'm pleased to say more than one year into the job and a brand that isn't just perhaps makeup as we might think it. It's fragrances too. I'm seeing candles. You're broadening. But you've also not just gone direct to consumer anymore. You're now in Sephora. 100 million run rate for that first year. Is that still where it stands? Yeah, so it's been, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Nice to be here. And, uh, you know, Glossier is such an incredible brand, to your point, beyond transcendent of just beauty, but multi-category, makeup, skincare, fragrance, body, merch. And we really do connect with a multi-generational consumer that has a deep emotional connection that I think is is very, um, very powerful. And we've been really building over the last two years the foundation and scale to match, build a business that really matches the power of, of this brand. Uh, we have 51% brand awareness and yet less than 1% market share. So incredible opportunity to connect the size and scale of our business with the size and scale of our brand. And we are now seeing that come to life at record revenue levels for Glossier and uh, two years of consecutive growth. And to your point, our launch 
launch at Sephora has been hugely successful for us, on track to pass 100 million in sales, and yet still is the smaller piece of our business. We do more of our business in our own channels. So it really is a powerful omni-channel strategy. How do you think about that in terms of any cannibalization whatsoever? Or really, have you just seen sales rise across the board, no matter which particular point of sale you're doing it at? Yeah, I mean, our strategy at its heart is how do we take this amazing brand that connects emotionally with consumers through our products and our experiences, and then bringing it to life across an omni-channel uh, strategy, which is really about bringing more Glossier to more people. And that is about putting the customer at the center and celebrating, to your point, the ecosystem where, where she can shop. So for us, it was really leaning into DTC, which is our founding. We were very much a pioneer of bringing D2C um, beauty online and the D2C model 10 years ago. And D2C continues to be an important part of our business, but the customers evolved and the marketplace has evolved and our strategy needed to evolve. And brands endure, but as strategies evolved, our channel strategy could evolve. So we um, replatformed and redesigned our site onto Shopify to continue to make sure we could lead with direct-to-consumer and social commerce. We've also opened up our own stores. We now have 11 stores, 10 in the U.S. and one in London, uh, that are experience centers for us, but also four-wall profitable. And then we launched in Sephora as kind of the third leg of that stool, largely because our customers told us they wanted us there. We were the number one brand searched on Sephora.com before we joined, joined them as a strategic partner and now have been able to launch into 650 locations across North America and seeing really exciting success across categories. Fragrance, our yeah. perfume is the number one fragrance at Sephora, uh, but skincare and makeup and really the power of this brand um, from a really multi-category standpoint. And the power of the brand was really built through social. Yeah. How do you navigate as a leader some of the politicization within the social world as well? We've got, you have a presence on X. Are you advertising on X? Do you think about the way in which you allocate or add dollars to, to social media companies that are getting more and more concerns built around them? We are at our heart a community-driven brand, and I think Glossier really was a pioneer at bringing the integration of social, community, commerce, online, and really foray into how we think about brands integrating socially. And we remain very connected to our community through social listening on platforms like Instagram and on TikTok, where we see incredible resonance. And then uh, we do things like Glossier Labs, where we bring our customers in and have a lot of deep connection with focus groups around how we can stay really connected to our customer and their insights and be fueled by our community and stay really customer focused and customer empathetic in how we're thinking about driving our brand go forward. So you remain advertising on a platform like X or no? We do not advertise on X. Okay, that's an Well, I think what's fascinating is to learn about the growth story and indeed continuing to grow internationally as well. Glossier CEO, Kalehi, we wish we had more time. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. There is so much breaking news happening this morning that's driving markets. AI is a big part of that. One earnings that we haven't discussed yet is C3A and AI. Missing on revenue estimates, the outlook not what the market wanted to hear. That stock down almost 11% as a consequence. We heard from AMD's Lisa Sue earlier in the show about their new AI accelerator, the MI300X. What's so weird is Wednesday, during the event, the stock was actually lower. So is NVIDIA. 
today, AMD up 8.4%. And, you know, the fighting talk is there. The bit the analysts like is during that presentation, AMD told us who their customers are. Azure is going to use MI300X. Meta is going to use MI300X in its data centers. That's what a lot of the sell side is saying, driving the stock today. But NVIDIA also higher because, Caro, AMD said this market is going to absolutely balloon to $400 billion in 2027 just for AI accelerators. For Mm. context, the entire global semi-industry last year was $500 billion. So AI is going to be just as big in just a few years' time. And boy, is AI going to disrupt the world of work and the way in which we work. Let's just talk about that for a moment in terms of whether you're doing hybrid work or not. Let's talk about workspaces provider, IWG. You might think of WeWork as one brand. Well, IWG has Regis, it has Spaces, and it's just been holding its investor day this week here in America. Company announcing it plans to resume regular dividends. For more, we welcome to the show IWG CEO Mark Dixon. And what is it like at the moment, demand for hybrid work for those sorts of office spaces that you have at the moment? moment while a few companies kind of want their people back in person well look for us the demands very high Um, and that's because we're providing workplaces not just in um, large cities in metropolises around the world but in lots of smaller towns so about 85% of our growth these days and we're growing for example in the US at about a 50% growth rate it's all in the provinces, all in rural locations. That's where workers are migrating to. So the world of work is changing. It's changing very rapidly. Are you your investor base gravitating to America as well? How do you see, if you've got such a growth rate here in America, what's that compared to in the UK where you come from and what does the investor base end up breaking down at? Well, uh, US investors are, are about 15% of our uh, shareholder base at the moment, but we expect it to grow much more significantly. Um, we've talked to investors this week about changing to dollars. Um, that will happen in January. Um, we're also reviewing a move to US GAAP that we think will clarify our numbers. And we're focusing much more on investor days and roadshows here in the US. 65% of our business profits are coming from the United States today and the most growth. Mm. So it makes sense to be here. Uh, Mark, there is an AI story here, and I know because I've seen it. In San Francisco in particular, shared office space and, and kind of hybrid working has seen lots of little startups, two or three founders, take some space, one room, a meeting room, to try and get their company off the ground. I wondered if it's happening outside of San Francisco, if there's a tangible impact on your business from AI around the world. Well, they're, they're absolutely, there's a tangible impact on a business from really two directions. So first of all, the sort of change in workplace is being driven by technology, basic technology, um, the internet, Teams, Zoom, etc., but also increasingly by AI supplemented and driven platforms that allow companies to much better manage productivity um, in their workforce. So we're seeing that come into the workplace now, but and we're also seeing large numbers of startups. I mean, alongside. Um, layoffs and redundancies around the world and in some parts of America, you're seeing a lot more startups and we're seeing those come through, not necessarily in downtown San Francisco, but all across the Bay and, and in the suburbs all over California. And I just want to explain to our audience, it was a Regis space that I visited recently as part of a documentary that I'm making 
where I, I witnessed this phenomenon. So I'm, I'm you know, I've seen it. Um, what is the biggest driver? Uh, technologically speaking, of people not to take off office space? In other words, are you still seeing people kind of rely on Zoom technology, for example, to work at home? And how much does that worry you still? Well, it, it sort of is quite good for us. Um, we're, we have about 700,000 customers today, individuals that are working from home. So it's quite a big part of our business. And all of these people working from home using Zoom or Teams or whatever are all dropping into an office some of the time. So that is becoming an increasingly significant part of the business. So hybrid working is becoming the norm. It's going to be a very, very significant uh, business in the future. We've said this week to investors about a two trillion TAM, um, and, and it's you know it's growing every day as a result of technology and as a result of companies like ours that put a technology platform together with a real estate platform and make it available with simple and easy to buy products. Yeah. That's what's driving growth. You're going to list here? Maybe at some point, but at the moment it's, it's really, we're so focused on growth. Um, we put out uh, a medium term target of a billion dollars of EBITDA and our cash flow is very close to EBITDA. So we're focused on that. The uh, uh, movement of the listing from London to another market is um, it's a consideration and we're always focused on what's best for our investors. So a larger investor base here in the, in the United States, it may be expedient to actually move the listing. Fascinating. Mark Dixon, come back when you talk to your American investors. Love having you here, of course. Very well-known entrepreneur in the UK and talking much more here across the Atlantic. Ed. Yeah, well, a top story over in Europe and meanwhile in Brussels in particular. EU negotiators remain divided on a plan to adopt the most comprehensive regulation for AI technology in the Western world. They debated it for nearly 24 hours, sitting through it, Bloomberg's Julian Deutsch, who joins us now from Brussels. The stakes are high here, and they've really not made any progress on a codified EU-wide AI position. No, it's been interesting. I mean, last night I was talking to you guys and Caroline um, that it was going to be a late one, but I had no idea it would be negotiations that would span over nearly 24 hours, and we still don't have a final deal. Um, By the time talks wrapped up today, around 1 p.m., we had some officials even falling asleep at their desks. So we had, you know, people said, okay, it's time to take a break, time to get some sleep. Um, They're regrouping. Come back tomorrow at 9 a.m. Brussels time. Let's just talk about the stumbling blocks here, because what I was interested to see in your reporting was that actually generative AI and the regulation of that seems to have perhaps been an area that they can agree on. It seems to be other areas that they're still stumbling over. Absolutely. So they cleared one major hurdle around 2 a.m. this morning, um, and that was really on this generative generative AI controls question. Um, And there they basically decided, okay, there'll be some basic transparency requirements for the developers of these AI systems, and then those that pose a systemic risk, they'll have to sign on to codes of conduct. But once they cleared that kind of controversial debate, they moved on to one that's even more contentious here in Brussels, because before the generative AI debate really kicked off here, there was this big debate over how governments and how police use AI in law enforcement and in national security. We forget sometimes that the EU is 450 million people, a big chunk of our Bloomberg technology audience is there. And that's why we frame it as this is a critical piece of global regulation. Um, What's the procedure, though? Who are the people that actually decide the fate of those 450 million in terms of how AI is regulated on their behalf? 
So it's a quite complicated system, but you do have the European parliaments where you've got at least two lead authors and many shadow rapporteurs um, from different parties. You also have Spaniards who are leading all EU 27 member states, and then you have the European Commission. Um, and I want to, want to remind everyone that everyone has very different views on this, this topic. You know, the parliament in the spring, they voted to completely ban the live facial scanning technology, so we couldn't have governments or police using you know, CTV cameras um, to, to scan crowds to find possible criminals. That is absolutely a red line for EU countries. But what's going to be very interesting to see tomorrow when they regroup is that even members within the same parliament group, they don't always agree on this topic either. So it's going to be, I'd be very surprised if we walk in tomorrow and these negotiators come in and they just agree to this new compromise at 9 a.m. Gillian, it's been a long old week for you, but we really appreciate you staying up late over there in Brussels for us. We most Gillian Deutsch with just some great expertise across the regulatory spectrum there. Coming up, we've got a great conversation with Initialized Capital. It's got a new partner. We're going to be discussing just what Jenny Fleiss brings to the company. Of course, serial entrepreneur in her own right from here in New York. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts VC Initialized Capital has got a new team member. Jenny Fleiss, co-founder, of course, of Rent the Runway, a Walmart subsidiary, Jet Black. She's joining Initialized as a partner and is with us now for more 
on, well, as a New Yorker, making the move into seed investing, to really like startup investing. What was it that was so attractive about Initialized in particular? Well, Initialized really sets the standard for seed. And this is an exciting time to be at seed. I mean, you have so much evolving in the world with AI just accelerating the pace of innovation. And to work hand in hand collaboratively the way that Initialized does with founders is just tr so true to my operational and entrepreneurial nature. Let's talk about some of the background you've already had in terms of helping mentor, but also putting money into startups. How much of that is occurring here in New York? How much of it is occurring across the US? Where do you think your sweet spot will lie when it comes to, I'm sure, e-commerce, but more broadly, your bucks to put to work. Yeah, it's a really exciting time in New York, and I'm thrilled that Initialize has an office and part of its team here. That was a really big plus for me. But when I think back to when we co-founded Rent the Runway 14 years ago, there were very few startups in New York. And today, if I think of my roster of angel investments and I look at Initialize portfolios, like there is a great group here so organically that's driving innovation in New York. And I am really glad to complement that mm -hmm. with the YC San Fran ecosystem that Initialize has. So I think our two networks pulled together as well as the diverse backgrounds of the existing investing team and my background will just let us work with so many great founders and companies. Jenny, good morning from San Francisco. I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with this idea that not all VCs are the same. You get different types. Some have been founders, some have not. Some have come from sort of legacy financial institutions. Some have been engineers at you know, software companies. You're a founder, and I, I wonder how that helps you make investment decisions. Yeah, um, well, it's a really important part of how I make investment decisions. My lens as an entrepreneur really let me see how to work with investors in a way that felt helpful and organic. And I was lucky to have a team of former entrepreneurs and operators myself, and it gave me a sense of how I could relate to the aspects of entrepreneurship and a founder that I think are game-changing for picking winning investments. And very unique to Initialized is the whole investment team is former founders, operators, builders from lots of different industries. And, and that is so special and unique. And it's really what made me feel at home when I got to know the team. I have met hundreds of VCs over the course of, of my career. And their approach at Initialized is, is very unique. And when you look at, at venture, not much has actually changed in how venture is done uh, and yet the world around us has changed so much and and for initialize it's like there isn't a playbook it's like they are creating their own playbook of what works based on their experience as entrepreneurs founders and operators and that's exciting to me that's fast-paced and entrepreneurial and feels comfortable to me <laughs> right well like even with a playbook there's a lot of choice though right so you're doing seed but you're doing seed across such a broad range of categories is there one particular area that you're really excited about thematically that you're, you, you think you'll write a lot of checks to? Yeah, uh, I'm excited about a lot of areas, which is why I love that Initialized is a generalist fund and I'll have a lot of room to play. But to call out a couple of things that are really exciting right now, AI accessibility. So obviously AI has already transformed our world and is, is still evolving so quickly each day. But we're getting to a place where it's starting to become more accessible to consumers and also to larger companies as we think of B2B plugins and solutions that combine AI and agents and hit that sweet spot of efficacy, efficiency, 
agency and also trust. Uh, I'm also really excited about ways that personalization are evolving, one-to-one uh, -one personalization with the help of AI. And I continue to be such a fan of just asset utilization. So, you know, Rent the Runway being one example, but so many businesses that are finding more creative ways to use their assets and service customers in a smarter way um, is, I think, changing consumer behavior. It's what it's all about at the core of what gets me excited. What's so interesting, well, the story of Ren the Runway, I think for me was the day that the bell was rung and just all the leadership being women. Yeah. What stood out in the initialized announcement was just how much diversity there is at a VC like that, what would 80% of partners basically being women. I mean, I'm interested as to whether that has to be something that's organic because they're choosing the best talent or whether it's really driven and motivating force and something that you'll look to when you're allocating towards maybe diverse founders. Yeah, um, I'm so proud and thrilled that I am with a company that has 80% of our, our investment team female. It wasn't a requirement of mine, uh, nor do I believe it was a requirement for Initialize. I, you know, I, they optimize for the best talent for, for founders and for the right fit to complement their team. But naturally, that is what organically came about. And for me, at the course of my career, likewise, it's, it's really been that way. For at Rent the Runway, at Jet Black and Walmart, the teams I worked with were always largely women. And I think the perspective um, that you can bring and the vantage point when you connect to different groups of consumers is so powerful. And at Initialize, there's diversity in so many ways, like age, male, female, different ethnicities, and all of that, I think, makes us best equipped to think of industry disruption and ways to connect with different types of founders. When we think of disruption, we think of actually sort of the pressure that Rent the Runway is still under when it look at a market capitalization perspective. When you think of just e-commerce more broadly, I've talked to many VCs who are just saying, I'm not touching consumer stuff with a barge pole at the moment. Mm -hmm. Is that something you agree with or actually do you need to still see the opportunity in a consumer that still is pretty resilient in the US right now? I think it's an exciting moment to be contrarian in that category. So I'm still really excited about innovation in the consumer landscape. You know, valuations for a while were very exaggerated and I think that's come back to a place that's much more healthy and then there's been a lot of macro factors that have made it easier for various companies to launch consumer businesses and brands so it's meant that there's a lot more clutter and breaking through the noise was harder and the cost of customer acquisition went up but now I think you are able to start to see some companies that are can break through that and so of course consumers still want exciting new brands to engage with I'd say in particular what gets me excited is brands that spark uh, experience experiential components of, of that pull on our heartstrings and touch different experiences we have in our life because the internet has made things so commoditized. We can buy things cheap, we can get it quickly, we can find almost anything. And so injecting that essence of personalization and that essence of experiential thoughtfulness, like that to me is where it's at as I think of this next generation of consumer brands. Jenny, one mistake that you made or lesson you learned through the Rent the Runway experience, and you're still on the board, but what's a piece of advice that you give based on that? Gosh, well, I feel lucky to have made lots of mistakes over the course of my career because that's how we learn, right, especially as, as entrepreneurs. You know, something that always sticks in my mind is when we were first starting the business, we didn't have a fashion background or a technology background. And I'd say with regards to fashion, we quickly scaled that learning curve. We had a lot of conversations and got to meet people in all parts of the industry. But related to technology, we were much more intimidated by the fact that we weren't engineers ourselves and we thought we could outsource that part of the business. And the reality is 
is that anything mission critical of the, of the company, it, you really can't outsource, right? And you need to find ways to at least probe and ask the questions or have eyes on whatever's happening, you know, day to day. Uh, and so we learned that lesson, luckily, like pretty quickly. And I don't think it, you know, it took us, it took us too far off course. Um, but it's also part of what made me really excited to be at Initialize because there's former engineers that are investors at this company. And so their ability to connect with founders and different companies yeah. that are so far afield from what my natural skill set and comfort zone is really lets me build this nice complementary skill set yes. and, and base of companies to connect with. Uh, Jenny Fleiss, Initialized Capital Partner. As of today, thank you for your time. This you. is Bloomberg Technology. After a congressional hearing on anti-Semitism, social media has been talking non-stop about the presidents of Harvard University, University of Pennsylvania, MIT, and now many of those presidents, well, they're having to issue statements clarifying their responses. Here to provide more context, Bloomberg's Janet Lauren. And ultimately, this is a backlash about the way in which they answered certain questions. My question is what happens next? Because there's a lot of echo chambers going on on the internet saying they're going to have to hand in their resignations. What do you make to that? Well, as we know, universities don't move as lightning fast as a public company. For example, if that happened to a public company CEO, you would have had an immediate indication in stock price. So the question is, what, what are the boards talking about right now? They're definitely hearing from alumni. They're hearing from politicians, including uh, Pennsylvania's governor also weighed in, as well as congressmen in Massachusetts, both Harvard alums and Democrats. So it is both sides that were not thrilled with what happened at this hearing. But what, are the, what is the support of the faculty? We're, we're not sure what is going to happen going forward. We know there's a regularly scheduled uh, pen uh, luncheon going on right now. Maybe we'll hear something afterwards. It may be presidents. It may be boards, you know, members of the boards of trustees. Uh, but we'll have to see what happens. But we do know in hearing from the students that also were at the, in Washington, they don't feel safe. They don't feel like there's a safe environment going on. Classes are being disrupted. There's marches going on. So there's, a, there's an impetus for leadership to address these issues. Is it acceptable for campus classrooms to be disrupted? And the word entifada, what does that mean? Well, it, well if it were used in other contexts, the definition, what happens to those students? It's a question that is being asked loudly by many an alum who happens to work in the technology field. So it's one that we wanted to address with you and we'll invite you back as well to continue as the story unfolds. Thank you so much, Janet Lauren, of course, some amazing reporting going on and the ramifications of that congressional hearing, Ed. Meanwhile, look, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Yep, another jam-packed Thursday. So much to recap on our podcast. Big thanks to everyone that is checking out the podcast. We're on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and of course on the Bloomberg platforms. From San Francisco and over in New York City, this is Bloomberg Technology. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc.
Listen wherever you get your podcasts.